This podcast explores topics that may be unsettling or disturbing to listeners. Episode names are straightforward. If you're aware of your triggers, please proceed with caution. This podcast is generally not safe for work, but some episodes will be labeled otherwise. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy! Thanks for tuning in to the first full-length episode of Nerd. That's Nerd with a U. I am your host, Caroline Walker. I was a stand-up comedian for 10 years. I don't do that shit anymore, so I decided to start a podcast. Uh, I'm super excited to be hosting this for you guys. The way this podcast is going to work is we're going to have rotating co-hosts, people that I really want to sit down and have a conversation with. We're going to be doing that for five episodes and five collections. So the first collection is the Phobia Collection, and then those will come out every Monday. So every Monday for the next five weeks, starting April 1st, you're going to get a phobia. Phobia. Anyways, so this week is xenophobia. Xenophobia is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, We have a special guest. Her name is Mariam El-Hajj, and she lives in the Rio Grande Valley, and she is currently working on her master's degree in psychology at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. So I'm super excited to have her on the show today. I will also have co-host Tom DeRosa on the show. Let's see, I already told you about collections. There's going to be five episodes in each collection, five collections, new episode every Monday, except for in between collections, there there will be a two-week hiatus. Well, you'll have lots of time for meditation and and, and yes singing in the two-week hiatus between collection one and collection two. Wow, I took that real far. You kept going. But there's another collection. I will tell you on the third episode of the Phobia Collection. Unfortunately, no nerd during those two weeks. So you can subscribe to us on eight different platforms. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, So make sure to check us out there. Whatever your favorite listening platform is, go ahead and do that. Our social media handle is at NerdPod. So you can use that on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever other social media is set up for that. Let's see. And what else? 
If you want to become a monthly supporter of NerdPod, you can go to anchor.fm slash nerdpod and um, go ahead and, and hit the link. And you could set up as little as a dollar a month if you want. Any little bit helps to bring bigger and better podcast episodes. Now, remember when you're looking up nerd, it's N-U-R-D. Because if you put in N-E-R-D, <laughs> N-E-R-D pod, you're going to get a sports podcast, which is totally, totally different than what we're trying to do. Uh, so remember, it's N-U-R-D. I don't even know what kind of sports they talk about. Maybe it's just like a general nerd out of of sports it makes me laugh it's almost like an oxymoron because you know jocks nerds whatever so just make sure you spelled that right n-u-r-d so tom what have you seen in the news lately about xenophobia well there's a couple things going on here domestically uh president trump just um has been spreading a lot of fear about a new migrant caravan that's you know coming to overwhelm our borders uh and in response he is threatening to shut down the border in the next few uh next week and has already cut off aid to the three countries where most of the caravanners are supposedly coming from um the three mexican countries yeah fox fox news identified them this morning as three mexican countries (laughs) (laughs) they apologized but uh, the damage was done uh, to their reputa- to their sterling reputation oh for accuracy gosh. and impartiality. Um, yeah, so he's cutting off aid and threatening to shut down the border if Mexico doesn't do something to stop the migrant caravan. Oh, and he said he was going to do a human wall, <laughs> right? Did you see that? The human wall? Yeah, he's, he wants to send... Well, that's what he was talking about when he was sending troops down the first time, was we'll have a human wall if we can't have anything else, if I can't have a physical wall. So that's happening here. And uh, But xenophobia is not an exclusively American thing like most things. Um, I was reading, actually, while I was researching, I all of the, the stories and uh, tweets I found about xenophobia were about what's going on in South Africa. Apparently in South Africa, um, there is a wave of anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant violence. Uh, so not just like rhetoric and scare tactics, but um, violence towards, towards immigrant business owners, towards truckers, and it's you know, powered and fueled by rhetoric, but the way it's being described is xenophobia because most of these immigrants are from other parts of the continent. So these are, you know, fellow Africans, but to South Africans, they are foreigners and they're take and and literally the same kind of arguments you hear from anti-immigrant folks here and xenophobic folks here. But in but, Africa, it's not a skin color issue, right? Because they're all the same skin color. Well, most. Mostly, yeah. Um, it, it's real, and that's where the, you don't hear the word racism used in in any of the the language, even among the people who are who are upset about the the foreigners. Uh, there's no race issue. It's they're just outsiders. They're foreigners. They're they're here to take our jobs and. It's it's a lot of poor South Africans, especially, who are angry about these immigrants taking our jobs. They're taking our jobs. It's the same rhetoric that's being used here, and it's the same rhetoric that's been used for 
literally hundreds of years, uh, even here in the U.S. Well, I mean, just in in the neighborhood that I live in, like so many of the restaurants are hiring. Like there's always a sign up that says now hiring, now hiring. And I'm like, if y'all need a job, come over here. She's talking about Mexicans taking your jobs. Nobody's taking the jobs. Well, that's the thing about the jobs. Usually the jobs that are being taken are low-paying jobs that most Americans don't really want. Um, and that's the same thing that even if you go back in history, when the, when the first giant wave of immigrants came in from Europe in the, in the 1800s, right? Industrial Revolution, westward expansion, our country growing rapidly. The Irish were the biggest group of immigrants that came in during their potato famine. Uh, and just famine in general. And they were willing to take low paying, hard, low, low pay, long hours working in the factories. And of course, you know, the people here were like, they're taking our jobs. And this is in the middle of the 1800s. And they were upset. And the rhetoric would be about they were, that they were a bunch of drunks, um, that they were taking the jobs or willing to take it for lower pay. Um, there was a whole bunch of anger about their religion because they were Catholic and most of America was Protestant. It was, it you know, and it's not that different than what you hear in South Africa today and what you hear even today. But the, the truth is immigrants contribute more to the economy than they take away. Most of the, the, the things, anti-immigrant stuff you hear are just, are, are just myths. They're more likely to start businesses um, they're more likely to have children, which actually contributes a lot to the economy. Well, you know, this this reminds me of a conversation that I had with one of the clinicians that I have. So she asked me where I went for spring break or whatever. I told her I went to the Rio Grande Valley. And she's like, is it dangerous there? And I, and I was like kind of shocked because the... When I think RGV, like, nobody has ever asked me that question. Yeah. And I told her, no. <laughs> and she's like, would you say that it's as dangerous as Houston? And I was like, not even close. Houston is way more dangerous. Absolutely. Now, I heard that question all the but time. But she, like, tried to correct me. I oh, told yeah. her, I told her, no, it's, it's not. Like, I'm from there. I was born there. And I told her, Houston is way more dangerous. She's like... No, you think it's as dangerous. <laughs> and she was white. And yeah. I was like, oh, fuck this. Like, I can't we just get on with my doctor's appointment? Because yeah. no... it really stressed me out. It pissed me off because, like, I'm from the RGV. I was just there for spring break. I'm fucking telling you to your fucking face that it's not dangerous there. And then you don't believe me. Well, why don't you go down there yourself and check? You know, well, that's what the media has stirred up, and it's it's not a Fox News thing or seeing they're all CNN, MSNBC, the network, they're all responsible for the hysteria. Now, I did get that question a lot um, over the years, um, but from from white people outside who who only heard about the violence, they don't nothing outside the valley. Like they know I'm there, and they know. The good things that I was telling them, or I was there, and the good things I was telling them, but all they see in the news is is bad stuff. So we could literally talk for hours. We could probably have an entire podcast just about 
xenophobia and immigration. I'm sure there are probably ones out there. But we are going to go to our special guest, Mariam. Mariam, in your words, what do you think xenophobia is? So oftentimes when we talk about um, different types of phobias and discriminations, people tend to use like textbook definitions and they tend to use that to try and, I guess, limit the way that the experiences of what the term means is. And so just the textbook definition is like the fear or distrust of people from a different place. But when we're talking about xenophobia and the experience as how I define it when I'm talking to people, it's more so like wanting to other the out group. So when people are living in a society, they tend to see themselves as an in-group and they see others as an out-group. And it's very frequent that we'll see things like this in this country, in the United States, where, for example, white Americans will see as foreign, they will see immigrants as foreign, they will see people even with a different color of skin than themselves as foreign. Right. And a lot of the times xenophobia is used interchangeably with racism. And although they are distinct things, they have a lot of connections. Xenophobia derives from racism, and that's like, I think, a key feature of it. So people who are xenophobic are essentially racist, and the way xenophobia plays out is very similar to the way racism plays out. But the difference with xenophobia is that it's specific to seeing someone as different than you. So if you see them as a different culture, you label them as weird, unreal, and sometimes even like that exotification of people right. of different cultures. So like that's a lot of what xenophobia is as well. So what I found, and there's a whole bunch of different like variations of the definition, but there was one from Mosby's Medical Dictionary and it said, an anxiety disorder characterized by a pervasive irrational fear or uneasiness in the presence of strangers, especially foreigners or in new surroundings. And I, I like that one better than the other ones because it's it specifically says an anxiety disorder. And this whole collection yeah. that we're doing with NERD is on phobias. And I thought since xenophobia is like so relevant right now that we'd, we'd start the podcast off with that. But I kind of want to touch on what you were saying about racism being kind of like used interchangeably with xenophobia. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost think that calling someone xenophobic is almost we're giving them a pass. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Cause yeah. If someone tells me they're afraid of the dark or I talk to someone like I would want them to have like some sympathy with me, maybe they help me and turn a nightlight on, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But when it when it comes to xenophobia, it gets kind of hairy, right? Because it's like that's when you start talking border walls and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so it's like the same as homophobia in that sense. So if you ask someone who might study strictly psychology or those kinds of mental health um, social sciences, they will see the phobia as the way psychology and psychiatry has defined phobia, which is the intent and uh, the intent. Right, like a severe. Yeah, that fear that is irrational. And I mean, yes, it is an irrational fear, really comes from no particular source. But when you're asking someone who maybe studies like sociological sciences or like someone who studies psychology in a sociological perspective, they see it as a little less of the psychologist, psychiatrist lens and a little more in the sociological lens and right. see it as how I have described it. Because yeah, like you might say that 
there's people who have that really intense and irrational fear. But when we're talking about homophobia and xenophobia, like the people who tend to show those behaviors that have been described as xenophobic or homophobic aren't doing so because they're so fearful per se, you know, they, they don't have that, but it would be different than saying, oh, I'm claustrophobic. Oh, I have arachnophobia. I'm so scared of spiders, you know? Yeah. But let me, let me pose this scenario to you then. A veteran with PTSD. So he, let's say it's a Vietnam vet and he goes over there and it's just, it's chaos. I don't know what they went through, but I know that it was pretty severe. And let's say they come back to the U.S. and and now they have xenophobia because they're grouping that terror with uh, persons who look Asian. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do they deserve a little bit more sympathy than would, let's say, you know, someone who's holding up a torch at, you know, like a, a rally? Yeah, I would say that they're different kinds. So his experience is more of someone who is experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. So he is associating the people that might have um, been in the region when he had also witnessed very stressful events. He's making that association. And even though that association is not necessarily a fair one, his xenophobic attitude is more due to experiences he had specifically and the fact that he is dealing with PTSD and he doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to cope. So I guess that xenophobia is a form of a coping mechanism because he sees it as a trigger to the PTSD. Right. Someone who might be xenophobic but has never had an experience. There's a lot of people who are actually like xenophobic because they haven't been exposed to other cultures people from other regions of the world. So for them, it's not the same kind of xenophobia because for them, it the fact that they haven't had that exposure, they are ignorant to it. So they don't have like a real fear, I would say, as the person who would be a veteran. Instead, they would have that, um, like that outgroup situation that I had described earlier where they see it as different than them. And for some reason, us people have a phenomenon where we, if we see someone as part of an outgroup, we see them as a threat. Right. Well, I mean, because basically we're we're fucking mammals, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. We're just a bunch of like crazy ass, either too smart or too dumb animals. Yeah. Um, and and it makes sense, you know. Like I I have been in a position where I'm going out, kind of get closer to the people I know, mm-hmm. and it's more of a generalized anxiety. So it's not like targeted at well black people or or Mexicans or Asians or whatever. It's just pretty much everyone's a threat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when that happens to me, I do feel like I need to be gentle with myself and not be like so upset at myself for those things. And I would hope that someone has empathy. You know what I mean? Like if I reached out and I told someone, hey, I'm anxious about this, then, you know, they comfort me or whatever, they do whatever they need to do to help me calm down. But when it comes to xenophobia, that's so, like, it gets so blurry. It's like, what the heck do you even do? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, and I was going to say, it's important to, when we're trying to figure out how to fix those kinds of things, it's important to look at where it stems from. And right. I like that we brought up like that dichotomy of xenophobia of someone who has that experience and is xenophobic because of their experiences and then someone 
who is literally xenophobic because of lack of experience. And I think the way that those types of things are treated and targeted is similar but different because when we look at someone who is experiencing it because of PTSD, we have to we have to look at the PTSD first and we have to treat something like that. Right. But if it's someone who is literally like just racist, they don't like people from other cultures, it's probably because they've never been exposed to it. And the only exposure they've had to it might have been something that was negative or um, being told by other people that, oh, they're different than us. We don't right. associate like just a shitty upbringing like their parents were racist so then it it's just like cyclical almost Mm -hmm. yeah that's precisely how it is yeah for a lot of people in this country and you're studying psychology right yeah i'm currently doing my master's um just finishing up my thesis and then i'll be done awesome that's awesome and so i mean are you looking into something specific with psychology or is just a general well no actually my interest and focus is um stress disorders and trauma so that's what i plan to hyper focus on yeah that's super awesome It, it just i guess what i'm trying to say is when i call someone a racist i'm thinking like these like what the fuck do you mean you want to build a wall why are you shooting black people like that's racist to me but then when I think of xenophobia I think of someone who might have like let's say the veteran who who went through something traumatic and their trigger in seeing those people is is a defense Mm -hmm. and so I guess I'm just trying to separate the two because I feel like calling a racist xenophobic allows more sympathy to come in yeah I I see exactly where you're coming from because um, you're looking at how the word phobia would mean like that really intense irrational fear um, that is very how do I say like I wouldn't say pathologic but it has to do with like mental health you know you're looking at it through that lens and that totally makes sense and um, a lot of the discourse around xenophobia I think has hyper focused on racism and if you look up something like xenophobia you will see racism because they tend to conflate the two with one another. Right. As if they're interchangeable words. Yeah. And I don't think they should be, but that's also like, that can be up for debate, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. With a bunch of different activists, because I mean, that's something that, that activists do use a lot. Like they'll, they'll call racists, um, xenophobes and that kind of stuff and yeah I've seen that a lot so close related um but yeah I mean that was super awesome that you kind of like hit it on the head when we first started the conversation Mm -hmm. um but yeah I mean (laughs) well I actually want to bring something up sure so um when you had described xenophobia and the way that you see it I think it's important to like we had talked about important to take um like experiences into account and um so both of my parents experienced a lot of xenophobia when they came to this country in the sociological meaning of the word so i don't like to say racism in that sense because my mom is white so technically she didn't experience racism but she comes from latin america so there was a lot of those attitudes towards her of being a foreigner they didn't like that she was from a foreign country that she couldn't speak english as well as everyone else that she had an accent and that she had trouble speaking some words and obviously with my dad it was the same except the fact that he had darker skin so that's something that was always um like amplifying right that he had but um something 
unique to my family that happened was when, so almost seven years ago, a very dramatic situation happened where my dad um, tried to kill my family. So after that experience, since he is Arab, my mom had some fear of Arabs. She had like this unjustified fear of the Arab community that we used to integrate really well with and we used to be around all the time. And it's a combination of the fact that he tried to harm us and the fact that there was mixed support within the community after that. Some took his side, some like believed us. Mm-hmm. And for her, she started to display those xenophobic behaviors where she would avoid them completely and had this severe distrust for them, thinking that they were going to do similar harm. Of course, she's gotten over it since then, and she doesn't have that distrust and fear anymore. But it's so interesting how a lot of the times, like you had mentioned, that xenophobia is seen by activists as just like that hatred of people from another culture or another country, when technically it should be defined as people who have that intense and irrational fear. Right. Like the way that my mom experienced it. Yeah. But like, I'm half Mexican and I'm half white, so mm-hmm. I kind of like, I feel like I don't fit in most times <laughs> with any conversation. Yeah. No, I have a hard relate on that. That's how it is when you are like multi-ethnic you know yeah uh so i I call myself a whole grain cracker (laughs) (laughs) so i'm a cracker but i got a little bit of you know the wheat in me yeah i like that i feel like i can identify with that for sure yeah because i mean i'll tell you this i lived in washington state and over there i got a lot of fucking racism mm-hmm. and then i and then i was in the valley in the rio Grande valley and obviously the majority of folks are mexican mm-hmm. and uh, to them i'm the gringa i'm the white girl whatever but when i lived in washington someone called me aunt jemima oh my gosh and i was like what the fuck i'm not <laughs> so it's like it's always been something either i'm too white or i'm too dark yeah yeah that's what it that's what it's like oftentimes coming from two worlds and um just like the way that you experience the culture it's different because you feel like you never get to fully submerge yourself in your cultures right and um sometimes Sometimes i feel like i'm lying yeah and then you know also a lot of the time like you are considered the out group for all of your cultures so like you say that you're white and you say that you're Hispanic and you don't quite fit in with Hispanic people. You don't quite fit in with the white people. So they both see you as different. So it's like, where do you fit in? Right. Where are you the in group? And it sucks because like you touched on earlier that people want to be part of something. They want to be, you know, like people. And not to say that, you know, my, that I need to be with just whites or just Mexicans, but like that obvious separation that's been happening for generations is what's causing, I guess, the inner turmoil right now. Mm-hmm. Like if we could all just fucking get along, then we can all have a happy fucking family and, you know, we can have fajitas and hamburgers at the barbecue. Like, yeah. Exactly. And I want to also touch um, on the fact that the fact, like the reason why we see people as part of the out group and 
as foreign than us. Like, yeah, there's innate qualities to animals and wanting to be with animals of the same kind, but race and like ethnicity, those are all things that we've created. So we've taught ourselves that someone is different than us. We don't naturally see them as different than us. If you'll see children that are very, very, very young before they are taught about like the difference in race and ethnicity and culture, they will literally see all children as the same as them, you know? for sure. They're not going to have preferences about which dolls to play with. They're not going to see like a black child is different than themselves if they're a white child because to them it's just a different color skin but it's not a different race it's not a different ethnicity because those are things that humans have created those are structures that we've made to define ourselves and also to separate ourselves from one another and i'm kind of guilty of that because like my son was watching tv and i put on uh some spanish youtube videos because i want him to be immersed in that language and he started fussing and crying and I was like dang you a little racist bro and but then I I changed it to a TV show he liked but I put Spanish audio and mm-hmm. he totally loved it and then I was like oh my god what the hell did I just say like it, it's obviously not the language but it's like so in me to to think that automatically mm-hmm. he just and didn't feel- like that particular show yeah and I feel like a lot of it is in the last few years just these conversations have gotten a lot more heated and we've kind of made ourselves sensitive to these topics where we feel like we have to be like on edge critical about it. We need to make sure that we're doing everything perfectly. And when we have such a hyper focus on it, we might make these assumptions of what's going on. Like you said, the assumption that you made with your child, because we've seen it like everywhere else. So we're starting to apply it to other things in our life where it probably doesn't apply. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me ask, I, I wrote a note here about this. Like, how do you feel about white people stepping up and, and getting super vocal, very, very into it, very like on the side of my Minorities. So they're activists and they're, they're quote unquote allies. But at what point does it seem like they're doing us a favor? You know what I mean? Like does, doing a favor as in, as in like, you guys can't speak for yourself. So let me speak for you. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, so, does, do you get that impression? Cause I feel like I kind of get that impression sometimes when, when there's white people who almost fight harder than a mi- minority would. Yeah. So I think one, distinction to make is um, I don't want white people to be my ally. I want them to be my accomplice. And by that, I mean, um, an ally is someone who maybe they'll be doing these things that seem good for you, might be benefiting for you, but there's there's always like that catch. It might be performative or it might be that there's a way that they'll compromise like after a certain point of helping you out. It's like, when are you going to help me out? Or there's a level of compromise that they're willing to make where they feel like, okay, your rights don't matter anymore. And an accomplice is someone who's more in line with defending you no matter what, because it's the right thing to do, you know? And I think it's great that white people are stepping up and being there for minorities and really making sure to bring these conversations to the table. But they need to make sure that when they do it, they have to check their intention. Like, what is the reason that they're doing this? Are they trying to outperform someone else? Are they trying to be like the perfect ally where they don't slip up and they don't make mistakes. Like that's not realistic at all. We always have this learning to do, especially when we 
we've been so ingrained in our culture to have these racist attitudes, um, these xenophobic attitudes, you know, the way that we see ourselves as an in-group and everyone else as the out-group, like that has been ingrained in us since we were little children. So to suddenly think that we're perfect without making mistake and we're just defending people of color and we're doing it without flaw, I think does not do anyone a favor. And I think it's self-serving in the, at the end of the day. Yeah, because I, I feel like there's a lot of people who kind of step up and try to find uh, community fame, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They're activists, famous, you know, in the little groups and stuff. But wh- I guess <laughs> when someone from like North McAllen or Sherryland is like getting real hyped up, and it's, I almost don't believe that they fully understand the struggle. And yeah. And I'm like, I'm totally okay with them speaking up and bringing it to the table and, you know, starting the dialogue. But then it almost tramples others who who have something to say, who may live in mission that's like in the in the boonies out where they want to do the wall. Because I have a friend who, who lives out there and she says the wall is pretty much going to be in her backyard. Yeah. And I would prefer to hear more stories from people like her versus someone who's living in North McAllen white and almost I don't know it I guess it's a fine line yeah so I feel like yeah like everyone has something that they can bring to the table um, when it comes to these kinds of conversations but it's so important to highlight the ones that are most affected by it so when I have conversations about the border wall when I'm talking to people who are not from the region I will refer to myself because I might be the only one in that conversation who is affected by this issue. But when I'm talking on a more of local, it's so important to uplift those voices that are being like affected in that moment. So like some, if you, for example, if you want to be an accomplice, if the media is there and they want someone to talk about how it's affecting them, you don't just step up just because you want to. If there's someone who's actually literally affected by it in your community, it would be best to maybe say, hey, do you want to talk to the media? Because you have a lot more to bring to the conversation than I do because it's literally affecting you. Like if it's going to be built in your backyard, if your land is going to be seized because of it, if your family is literally being prevented from coming into this country because of it, it's affecting you more than it's affecting me. And I think that your voice really needs to be amplified on this issue. For sure. Yeah, totally agree on that. Wow. This went all over the place, but also it just stayed right where it needed to be, I Mm -hmm. think. I appreciate you um, taking the time to talk with me about xenophobia. I know it's like a super sensitive issue and that's why I wanted to tackle it. Appreciate Thank you. you for having me. And that's it for our very first episode of Nerd. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, just a reminder, you can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. And also, if you want to help us out and become a monthly supporter, you can do so at anchor.fm slash nerdpod. A huge thank you to Roy Alex Gomez 
for doing our promo video. You can find that at facebook.com slash nerdpod. Uh, thank you to Crown Holding Click for doing the music for our promo video. Thank you to TAO together as one for doing the intro music for the actual podcast. And a huge thank you to our researcher Tom DeRosa and our guest Miriam El Hajj. So next week we are going to talk about the fear of falling in love, which I think is pronounced philophobia. We couldn't find a pronunciation online, but we'll keep looking. So don't forget, next episode comes out on Monday, April 8th. For all those who are afraid of falling in love and stick with us because episode three will be coming out the week after that and that's when i will reveal what the second collection is about